I am sitting in lovely Siesta Key, Florida. I'm coming from Bangkok in Thailand. Prague in the Czech Republic. Cairo in Egypt. Auckland, New Zealand. London, England. Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Follows. Hello listeners, this week it's just me and you. We publish our episodes at midnight GMT on Mondays and we published our first episode on Monday the 1st of March 2021 which is my birthday and thanks to the generosity of my network of guests and the the diligence and the commitment of Hannah and Julia in Aquila's Career View Mirror team, we have been publishing an episode every Monday since then. And I'm I'm very proud of that achievement. That makes 52 episodes so far. And we've still got one more Monday before we hit our one year anniversary. So we thought we'd take advantage of this bonus extra Monday, this 53rd Monday, at, and use it to reflect on our first year in podcasting. Our 52 episodes have reached listeners in 62 countries and well over a thousand cities around the world. And when we first started, I noted that there was a point where we got to 15 countries. I was very excited about that. And I thought at the time, we're probably really going to struggle now. It's going to be an event every time we get an extra country. And so no way did I think we'd get to 62 countries. We had some ideas at the beginning of how our first episode was going to go, but we we quickly got into a a format for it or a structure for the episodes. You'll know it if you listen to them. We we always start with where the guest is, where are they coming to us from geographically, and we go back to their childhood and we ask them about their school days and we then go on a reflective journey with them from their earliest memories up until the present day. And we pay attention to their early year experiences and we look at their family situation, their memories of school, the roles that they had visibility of when they were growing up and the level of clarity that they had about what direction they wanted to take as well. We dive into the choices they've made, the influences, the lucky breaks and the mistakes. We sit alongside them as they revisit their the more challenging phases of their journeys. We we respect them. We we appreciate them for sharing their stories and we celebrate their careers today. We don't ask them to teach us. We give them a space to tell it as it was from their perspective. And we just leave it that the elements that resonate with us, let them resonate with us or with each of you. As I always say at the end, you are unique. So I recognise that we're all going to be getting different things from these episodes. And that's why we don't put pressure on our guests to, to teach us specific things. We just let it let it flow. And as we have learned this year, learning from experience, from our own experiences, powerful. My guests have all learned from their experiences. But if we can learn 
from their experiences, that's really effective. And yeah, that's a real gift. Some of my guests have achieved the job titles, the pay grades, the staff count and the air miles that easily mark them out as conventionally successful in the way that that is widely accepted in the corporate world. Others have gained deep sector experience. They've become experts, subject matter experts, and they've progressed their careers as technical specialists. One of the things I've loved about the episodes is the variety. Some of the guests have come from backgrounds that have automatically launched them onto a certain trajectory. They had very comfortable, privileged childhood, etc., great education. And some people have navigated their way from a, a more challenging environment and made a career for themselves from a different starting point. And whichever, all of them have got a story to tell and all their stories contain what I like to call golden nuggets of transferable experience that we can reflect and learn from. One of our listeners, Mike, uh, I'll call him Mike W. He knows who he is. In Japan, he described Careerview Mirror as an automotive podcast that's about humans, not machines. And I'm keeping that. And I've used it a number of times since because I, I really like it. And that humans, not machines. I'm grateful for the humanity that my guests have brought, the humanity, the humility that the guests have demonstrated. And, and it's because they're so open in the conversations that the conversations are engaging to listen to. And the fact that they come with humility puts us in a frame of mind that we're able to receive what they're saying and potentially learn from it, which we wouldn't be able to do if they weren't so humble about it. I think it's rare that any of us are ever encouraged to sit down and tell our story and reflect on it in the same way that we do with our guests. And I absolutely love it when during one of these conversations, and you'll have heard them too, the guest has a mini epiphany and they connect certain elements of their life and decisions they've made that they'd never quite thought of it before. That's a huge treat when that happens. I said it was just you and me. That wasn't strictly true. What I want to do is share with you some some of my guests from the last 52 episodes. Not not all of them by any means. We've hardly scratched the surface, but just some little tasters and uh, a trip down memory lane, if you like. They're illustrative of the conversations that we have. And I'm hoping that they'll remind you of some of your favourites and they'll give you an idea of other people to listen to if you haven't. And in doing this, it really made us realise just how much amazing content we have. So expect to see a little bit more of this going forward. I've said before that my guests inspire me and I'm sure they inspire you as well. And one of the young people who inspires me the most is Annie Wechter, who was our first guest. She helped me set the podcast up. Then she agreed to create the first episode with me. And so it's very fitting that we share a little bit of Annie's story with you for this special episode. She and I met at Tesla, done lots of different things since. And in this extract from the conversation, she's talking about growing up in rural Michigan and then getting out of her comfort zone, travelling around the world. Where did you find yourself most out of your comfort zone during those <laughs> 10 months? I would have to say Uganda. And I have to preface that because I grew up in a family of 12 kids. Okay. We grew up in rural Michigan and we didn't have internet. We didn't have TV. We had two dogs and cornfields around our house and we played outside. So I didn't grow up with a lot of 
luxuries. We didn't have new cars. We always had, you know, secondhand cars or cars where we ran into the dirt until they were backfiring when we got dropped off from school, which was funny and horrifying all at the same moment. Um, we had road trips where we were laying, we would fold the seats down because, you know, in an old Toyota van, you could do that. And we would sleep like sardines, all 12 of us. And we would make peanut butter jelly sandwiches and, and our vacations would consist of driving cross country to all the national parks. So we didn't have a, a luxurious upbringing at all. So I thought, okay, going to you know rural Uganda, I had signed up for two different volunteer programs for two weeks each. And preceding the trip to Uganda, I had been hiking in Nepal in the Himalayas with a friend from university. And I was telling her about my my next phase of my trip where I'd be going to Africa. And she said, you know, I, I've quit my job, just spent two months in Italy. You now we've just spent one month together in Nepal. Could I come with you to Africa? And I said, well, you can, but I just want to warn you, you know, I'm going to rural Uganda. I'm doing volunteer work. I'm, I might do a safari in there, but I'm going there to work. And I don't know what the conditions are going to be like. So she said, okay, well, you know, I trust you. I trust you. I want to, I want to come along. And this is a friend who is a single child who grew up in Silicon Valley and I don't think has ever traveled to, had traveled to Asia or Africa before this, this trip to the, to the Himalayas. And so that's why I was giving her fair warning. She said, it's okay. I can, I can handle it. So we fly into Uganda. Um, we get picked up by the head of the NGO. She's, you know, young, really vibrant ball of energy. Her name is Bernadette. And she says, okay, we're so happy to have you. You're our very first volunteers. No other volunteers have agreed to work with us yet. So we're so grateful that you're here. And my friend Morgan is looking at me and she's whispering, did you, did you look up any reviews on this, on this organization? I was like, oh, they didn't have any reviews, but it, it's fine. I saw some pictures. It's, it's going to be fine. She's like, okay. So we're driving maybe an hour outside of Kampala, dirt roads, really rough roads, but that was sort of typical from our, our couple of days in Kampala. So we're not worried about that. But we're getting further and further outside of the, the city center, and we're seeing less and less on the side of the roads. We're basically in rural jungle setting. We arrive at Bernadette's home, which is made of cinder blocks and has a dirt floor. And it's, it's mostly built, but definitely you know missing some doors, missing a floor. There was no running water. And it was okay, you know, for your shower, you'll take this, this jug and you'll go out to the rain catcher and you'll fill it up and then you'll pour it over your head and you'll use a bar of soap and that'll be your soap and your shampoo. And that's it. And for internet, we don't have internet, but we have, you know, a little travel internet that you can use to, to connect and do the work for our organization. And, and you live here, right here with, you know, myself and my twins, my son and my daughter. And they were so sweet and welcoming and just so grateful to have us there. It was hard to, you know, be negative about the experience, but I was just holding in like a, a huge giggle because I just knew what was going through my friend's mind at that time. She was just like taking everything in with like sheer panic. And so finally that night we're lying in bed, two twin mattresses, which is just foam basically on top of a, on top of cinder blocks. And I just look over and I go, Morgan, you okay? She goes, I'll get through it. <laughs> I go, I go, so I'm guessing you wish I had looked up reviews now, huh? She goes, We'll talk about this tomorrow, Annie. And she turns over and goes to bed. <laughs> so it's 
that was one of the moments where, you know, you're getting through two weeks where you're showering from a plastic container. You're, you're, you have a squat toilet outside. So even in the middle of a rainstorm, you're, you're squatting outside, but you get through it. And I tend to find that even in those most uncomfortable moments in life, when you look back on those times down, down the road, you tend to kind of bundle it up uh, and remember the good things. And maybe you remember some painful parts, but the the funny things that happened or, or the sweet moments that came out of it, you tend to remember those stronger. And so I knew we were going to get through it. And I was actually very grateful to have a friend that I could kind of have these, these funny memories with and laugh about it during during those couple of weeks and afterwards as well it just became one of the one of the best memories of our uh, entire three months traveling together that we still look back on and and chuckle about yeah it was that was one of one of those moments if you've listened to annie's whole episode i'm sure that clip would have reminded you of just quite how much energy and curiosity that she has And someone else who was curious to explore the world and their own purpose in it was David Watts. We left the country on the 5th of January 2005. Now, that may not mean anything, but Boxing Day 2004 was the Pacific tsunami, Indonesian tsunami, whatever, wherever it was, which wiped out, obviously, large parts of, well, well, large parts of everything, really. But um, obviously, when that hit the news and we were sitting there going, well, in 10 days' time, we're flying out to that part of the world um how does that affect us now as it happens borneo is protected by other bits of land so it it wasn't impacted and where we were going wasn't impacted but it did then have an impact on us later because as we were then having left borneo to continue our trip we were then heading up through malaysia into thailand across cambodia into vietnam to then fly down to australia to do a very whistle-stop tour four weeks in Australia before heading down to New Zealand um, for, for the Lions tour. And as we made our way up through Malaysia, we met people on the way down through Malaysia who were then, having found out that we were very experienced divers or relatively experienced divers, they were saying they'd come from Co- the COPP, which had been essentially wiped out by the tsunami. And there's a whole recovery piece going on there. And there was actually a dive recovery camp there um, where they wanted they needed experienced divers to come in to just to volunteer because if you imagine the wave has swept in and then swept back out again um, and taken an awful lot of life into the bay now the bay itself actually has a really good coral reef but has been completely covered by all the debris and all the silt and everything from from the wave and so what they needed was for people to come in and clear up as much of the big stuff out of the water as they could you know all the rubbish and personal effects and, and 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 bits and pieces before they then essentially got an industrial vacuum to come in to suck up all the sand off the reef so they could repair the reef. Um, but they needed all the big stuff, all the sort of things you could pick up to be removed as much as possible. Um, but you needed experienced divers because as soon as you start pulling stuff out of the silt, it obviously then stirs the silt up and you, it very quickly becomes essentially zero visibility. So you're you you can barely see your hand in front of your face. So you're you're diving in darkness essentially and recovering stuff by feel so they said they were looking for that and so we said well we've got we've got time we can swing by co-pp as you do um, on our way up to bangkok and uh, so we stopped there for a week um we um we sort of mixed and matched doing dive recovery work with then um supporting the local dive shops who needed needed business by going out on trips with them to to see the local local stuff so yes we did a number of 
number of days doing recovery work, which was incredibly rewarding and incredibly tough at the same time, because for the most part, you're, you're picking up rubbish. But a lot of that stuff is then you're then picking up people's clothes, you're picking up people's toys, uh, you're finding photo albums, you're finding people's wallets, and, and everything has to be catalogued so that it can be then passed on to the relevant authorities as part of evidence as to what what's happened really so and and you had a briefing before you went out each each time you always had a briefing to ensure that you knew what to do if you if you had the worst case scenario and you found i mean this is at this point we are early april so it's it's sort of three months since the tsunami but the the real risk is that you will find you will find somebody or rather the, the remains of somebody so um uh, you have to have a there's a very specific protocol that you have to go through if you find the remains of somebody um, as to what, what you do with that. So extraordinarily rewarding and an amazing community of people that are just all just pitched up. Um, you know, there are lots of people there helping do rebuilding work and painting and and, and just clearing the town, but the, an extraordinary group of people who are supporting the dive dive recovery piece. And, and, and it was just a shame that we, we could only spend a week there. That's all we, uh, because we had flights to catch. We had a, we had a very tight schedule out of, out of Vietnam to get ourselves to Australia and, and then onwards to, to New Zealand. So we, we only had a week spare, but um, an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Yeah. I wonder whether when you listen to David's story, you found yourself like me just then, transported under the sea, looking for people's most treasured possessions in very low visibility. And hoping to goodness it wasn't going to bump into anything that might have terrified me. As you might expect, our guest stories often illustrate the hard work that goes into building a career. They also share with us, though, when luck plays a part. And Ross Forder started out wanting to be an actor, and he was helped on his way by an extraordinary stroke of luck, as he explains in this next clip. My friends were all going off to universities. They were going off to university to study, you know, economics or, or geography or whatever else they were doing. And there was just nothing within that realm that was grabbing me at the time. So I was just, oh, I'll take a year out. Uh, I'll, I'll earn some money, maybe go somewhere funds, went to California, and um, and then just figure out what I want to do. And during that year, I figured out that my next move was to start applying for drama schools because the acting dream was still still alive in my head. <laughs> and um uh, and that's what I started doing. So I started applying for drama schools. Didn't do many auditions. I, I didn't know how to apply myself at this point in time at all. Quite honestly, I was still quite immature mentally at the age of 18. Didn't know how to apply myself. Didn't really know how to. So and when I was going to auditions, I wasn't doing anywhere near, anywhere near enough uh, research or, or strategic thinking as to what I should be doing in, in, in these auditions. I was just turning up and reading a couple of, reading, you know, reading, reading some lines. And then I'd, get knocked back and it was, they wouldn't even take me to the next stage and I sort of at this point in my life I didn't understand why I just I just could a huge black spot so I just couldn't see the way to to apply myself and, and maybe find some, a bit more success with these things at the time so uh quite funnily I uh my parents at the time were like look like just we, we think you should crack over this like try and figure something out and so I started um I was you know I was aiming for RADA and all these sort of top top folks and just and just getting knocked back completely unsurprisingly, having done sort of no preparation whatsoever for the auditions, which is, which is just wild. And you know, I think back to that, and I, what was I thinking, young Ross? You just want a time machine back and go, dude, come on. I wouldn't change anything for the world, but I'd probably have a little word myself and say, just a few blind spots here, dude. So 
This is quite strange, though. So I basically applied for a sort of a pseudo acting school university up north um, at the time. It now does actually have accreditation at UCLAN, which is the University of Central Lancashire. I have no idea how I came on to that. I'd never been up north. I had no, I'd literally never been up north at this point in my life. I have no idea how I stumbled across it at the time, but I did. And I, I, and I applied and I got in, which was interesting because when I actually, so, so then sort of I've, I've applied now that no, I turned up to the, the gap year is finished. I've, I've got into this sort of drama school university up north and I turn up on the day and everyone starts talking about the auditions they've done to get in. And I'm like, I never auditioned to get in. And I quickly find out that absolutely every single other person on the course has gone through a full audition process to get in. And I haven't. And what I discover is I'm an accident and they've just accidentally sent me an acceptance letter and enrolled me onto the course. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm there on, on start day. Like they've enrolled me. I'm with everyone else. And, and the, um, the course leaders cottoned onto this. Uh, because the words came out because you know some of these guys are a little bit annoyed that I've just been given a letter they've had to go through a full audition process you know round one round two finals whatever else and I've just turned up being like didn't audition mate <laughs> and so the, the course leaders caught on to this and they um, I mean I'm not sure what they would have been able to do even if it was totally terrible but they took me off into a side room and said well you know you're gonna have to audition for us now uh, for this spot and you know h- how much that was just like you know we need to at least put you through the ropes and put you through the for the mill a bit just because that's the right thing to do or how much they were serious and so, you know if you suck at this audition we're, <laughs> we're gonna tear up the whole letter and send you home right now not sure but maybe fate was on my side that day I, that's I, a brilliant story uh, yeah it was wild to think about it maybe fate was on ross's side that day for rupert ponting In his early career, it wasn't fate, but it was someone much close to home who was championing his cause. I'm going to let him tell you about that. But yeah, so um, in the background, unbeknown to me, my mother had found a job advert and she'd put my CV in for a job. And I got an interview and mother came to me and she said, have you seen this post? And I said, well, because the post had gone to her house. I wasn't living there. I was living somewhere else. I, I left home uh, very early. I left home at 17. Um, anyway, so um, she said, well, you better read it. So I opened this thing up. And at the top of the logo, it said glasses. And I thought, what? Glasses? Glasses tied. I said, what have you done? And she said, oh, well, I saw a job advertised and I thought you might be quite good at it. So I, I've applied for you. I said, oh, for goodness classic sake. Classic mum behaviour. Absolute classic mum behaviour. So there I was with this piece of paper that said, come and meet Leslie Allen um, in Weybridge uh, 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 at I don't know, 10 o'clock on such and such a date. So I did. And that was when I moved to Glasses. And that would have been... You got the job. You got the I job. did. I went through... I went did, through... they ask, did they ask, so Rupert, why does your mum want you to have this job? <laughs> I don't think they really knew that mother had applied for it. And I, no, I didn't tell sure a long time after. <laughs> well, it was it was odd because, you know, I turned up and I said, I'm here for an interview and I'm seeing this chap. And they said, oh, what was the job for? And I, I don't really think I had a clue what the job was for other than editor. Anyway, I had three interviews and it, it drove me up the wall. And I knew that I was I was batting against a, a, a difficult team here because what they said in the advert was, over 30, X uh, forces preferred, so forth, so forth, so forth. And I was 24, and that was that. 
And I just thought, well, I don't know why they decided to see me. Something must have appealed, but I don't know what it was. So you can only go in and be who you are. So Glasses was, in back in those days, was very, very, very traditional. And, and Leslie Allen was somebody that had been in the forces all his life. And most of the other editors had come from various different parts of the forces because they were very structured. Uh, it was a bit of the old boy network as well, um, but they were very structured. You know, it forces people tend to be very, very structured, and that's what they needed. They felt they needed within the editorial team at Glasses. It's just changed say, Sorry, I just thought, Rupert, for our international mm. listeners, just say what Glasses is. Uh, apologies. Yes. Okay. So glasses uh, or glasses guide, as it was probably known at the time, is a vehicle valuation company. And at the time they produced books that would list the uh, perceived used car pricing from a retail price and a trade wholesale price so that a car dealer or somebody involved in the car industry would be able to know what to pay for a vehicle of a certain age and mileage. Thank you. And very relevant to your where your career continued to yeah. to to go, isn't it? And, very much uh, so. So, so you got the job. Well, I did, and and it was it was fabulous. I did three interviews. After the third one, I got home. I I battled through this. I the car dropped its oil all over the driveway when I got back, and I said to my mother, <laughs> I said, "It was That's exhausted it. as well. <laughs> yeah, it was exhausted. Never going to happen." Anyway, I got a letter about three days later that said, "Congratulations, you've been successful. We'd be delighted to offer you a job as the caravan editor." And I said, what? Because, of course, to most people in the trade, the glasses guide was a vehicle valuation product for cars. And I knew they did commercial vehicles. I had no idea they did caravans. So I pitched up for my first day at work and I, I was given the job as caravan editor. And for the first couple of years or 18 months of my career working with glasses, it wasn't about cars, which is what I'd aimed to do. It gave me a nice enough car. It gave me a good salary and I traveled an awful lot. But it was all about researching the caravan market and setting uh, the prices for caravans. So Rupert found himself by chance in the position, or not quite by chance, by his mother's doing, in the uh, position of caravan editor at Glasses Guide. And those of you who listen to Rupert's episode and know where he is now will appreciate quite what a pivotal moment that was in his career journey. One of my core values is interdependence. And I learned most about that from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I know I go on about a lot, but I've learned a lot from that book. And the idea in particular that maturity as we become increasingly mature perhaps a measure of how mature we are is our ability to work effectively with other people for mutual benefit and that idea of the impact that other people have on us and the impact that we have on other people is a recurring theme in the podcast episodes and in in this clip I'm going to share with you now Ed Epley who is a wonderful friend and mentor of mine is talking about how someone helped him uh, in his early years. The work I was doing with my clients, I probably had 30 clients that advertised on the, on the station, but there were two or three of them where they didn't just view me as the person who sold the radio advertising. They, we would have conversations about what they were trying to do with their business. And they had choices to make uh, about who to hire and whether they should add product lines or 
do an expansion or open a second store. So they were trusting me with, you know, pretty intimate conversations at a very young age about what was going on. And most of it was rooted in just curiosity for me. Well, why are you doing that? Or why do you think that's important? And, and you know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I tried to make sure I was thinking at a high level. I didn't always understand what I was reading, but I was exposing myself to it. You know, I was trying to prepare myself in a, in some way to have some meaningful conversations with these folks. And one of them had a large budget that was spent also besides radio, there was newspaper, there was direct mail, and there were billboards, you know, signage on the, on the highways. And so they started asking me, well, how should I spend that money? I mean, I mean I, let's say that I have $100,000 to spend. How do I divvy it up? And so we'd have some conversations about it. And sometimes the amount that he was going to spend on radio, I would say, that's probably a little high. You should probably change the ratios here and here. And, and then I, I would drive away feeling good that I had the conversation, but bad recognizing that uh, I just cost myself some money, let alone the station. So I had this happen with two other clients. And so by now I, I'm going, I got to have a conversation with my station boss, my owner, the owner of the station. So wonderful man, Tom Moore. And Tom's the fellow who hired me to be the salesperson and the sports director. And so we had a good relationship. And Tom was also, the reason I got into the Dale Carnegie sales course was Tom was an instructor for the original Dale Carnegie course in effective speaking and human relations. And he was a button down, black suit, tie, horn rim glasses, and a head balder than mine, if you can imagine, and really intense, but a wonderfully decent human being. So I go into Tom and I say, Tom, I, I got a problem. He says, well, tell me about it. And I explained it to him and what was going on with my clients. And he, he sat back and he, he said, Ed, what you have is an ethical dilemma. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, you got to decide if you're working for me or if you're working for the, the people that are spending the advertising dollars. They're asking you to be their advertising agency. And I said, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. I said, what do you think I should do? He says, you're 22. He says, tell you what, if you want to do this, I'll recognize you as an advertising agency and I'll pay you 15% commission on anything that you place with us. So you'd still get paid for that. And he, he said, look, I'd love for you to stay. But he said, you know, if you're going to do this, this is a great time to do it. If you screw it up, you can come back. And I mean, what a what a wonderful gesture. And um, how fortunate he was giving me a chance to go play this game with a net, you know, a protective net. If it didn't work out, I could come back. And so that's what I did. I started my own advertising agency, not having any idea really what that meant. Ed's boss at the radio station gave him an incredible opportunity to start his agency with the gift of a safety net. If it didn't work out, that is just all you can ask for, really, isn't it? Then my next guest, Brian Allen, received a different gift, an equally valuable gift when he was actually growing up. So not the same time Ed, Ed was already working, but this Brian got a gift much earlier than that. And I'm going to ask you, I'll play it for you in a minute, but imagine how the childhood experience that he describes, that he shares with us here, how much that will have fundamentally affected his perspective on life, his paradigms about what we now are much more used to calling diversity and inclusion. Have a listen to this and just think what that would have done for Brian. You're unlocking a lot here. It's almost like a really good therapy session on a positive side. But uh, there was a, an African-American family that 
shortly after my dad died and my mother was not well, that took care of me from basically when I was nine years old to 16, that would feed me and provide dinner often. And I financially still had to pay for the apartment and stuff, selling newspapers and other odd jobs. But they kept me from going into an orphanage, frankly. And um, in case they listen to this, I'd like to give them credit because Bobby Lyle, uh, his wife has passed, Dolores Lyle, uh, were incredible with two sons, Robin and Tommy Lyle. They were just a couple years younger than me. And they taught me so much about tolerance and diversity and the beauty of diversity and some of the challenges. But that also helped me through all my career that the world is only better with a variety of cultures, race, gender, you know, and tolerance. But Dolores Lyle and Bobby Lyle gave me a lot of the teachings that I use today also. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there. I apologize, but you unlocked unlocked another one. That's no apology necessary. I'm on the edge of my seat here, Brian. When people are talking about diversity, Brian, I'm thinking, especially if if people who work with you now listen to this, if they didn't know that, then a lot of things are all of a sudden going to make sense because... I can picture you as a youngster all those years ago being taken care of in that family. Um, Of course, you're going to have a totally open mind. You're going to have a a wonderful appreciation of different cultures and ethnicities and race. And so that was what a, and this might sound odd, but what a gift to. No, an absolute gift. Absolutely. I can tell you, and again, you're, you're actually opening up some wonderful memories. Um, They took me for the first time, believe it or not, to a McDonald's. (laughs) And it's it's just the things that they did, the the Lyle family taking this white kid that at the time people would look kind of strange when we'd go out and they'd take me to a restaurant and they'd say, what's going on? And I didn't quite understand it because now... I'm talking about just over nine years old, all the way through 16. But in the early period of this relationship, I witnessed, unfortunately, probably some of the sadder side of humanity, of of prejudice, and uh, just some of the things that are going on in the world today. I was able to witness firsthand and then see some of the, the bright stuff. But the thing that... I am able to do today is to connect with people from all backgrounds, whatever they're into, whatever color they are, and and just have appreciation that is so sincere. Because if anything, I want to give back to anybody that's in a disadvantaged position. And don't get me wrong, I do believe in people have to earn things, but this is that if if somebody just needs support, direction, that's what I really enjoy doing. And there's a couple organizations that I've contributed to that with time and, and uh, finances to do that. Because the, the real world is, is that certain people in our demographic, in the world of, of culture, have been disadvantaged through no fault of their own. And I think some positive change is happening. Uh, has happened, frankly. But I apply that to business, whether it's a customer or an employee. And 
One of the great things today in the hire car world is for your audience, what we do is we we give people a vehicle, a job, and insurance, and typically less than a day, if not an hour. And most of those people are disadvantaged people. And it's for gig economy, ride sharing, jobs for Uber, Lyft, or food delivery, package delivery, medicine. Goodness, we even now have in the United States, uh, some recreational drugs are legal and they're delivered. So it really helps people, especially who lost jobs during COVID. And uh, so that's just another thing that really pulled me out of retirement, frankly, was to serve this company and the people that benefit from it. So Brian didn't have to didn't have to learn about diversity. It was just an integrated part of his childhood. Staying with that topic, Karima Hadji shared about the cultural expectations placed on her growing up in the early 1990s and being a minority in her cohort at university and then the subsequent experiences she's had in the automotive industry. And what had you studied, Karima, at university? Yeah, so I did computer science. So it was a very technical degree. It was quite male-dominated, if I'm honest. I mean, I think we had a cohort of about 97, 98 and four four girls. So so that that was challenging in itself. Needless to say, my parents who who have obviously we come from parents come from East Africa, but with Indian heritage. When I told them that I was going to do computer science, they were absolutely horrified um, because, you know, traditionally it would be, well, you've got, you know, surely you're going to be a doctor or an optician or a dentist or an accountant. Those are the choices. <laughs> Those are the choices. So to come out, you know, in, in the sort of early 90s um, to my parents and say, actually, I'm not going to do any of those traditional subjects, but I'm going to do computer science. And computing was still relatively new at that sort of that stage. So it wasn't very well known. People didn't really know what does a computer science degree do? What are you going to do with a computer science degree? But I had been into computers when I was at school, actually. And when my, at my primary school, we were quite forward thinking. Um, and I remember we'd been interviewed, I think it was the Telegraph, uh, they'd done a piece on our school. And there was a picture of me, I think it was about seven or eight there was a photo of me with this new computer, the first computer in some of the primary schools. So I clearly, at the back of my mind, I always had some sort of, you know, affiliation to, to computers. And I, But, you know, subconsciously, I didn't know that until I actually got to, um, to say, OK, well, what, what am I going to do study-wise? So that was, that was quite nice. It sort of closed the loop a little bit for me as well. So anyway, so after I'd convinced my parents that you know computing was going to be the next big thing and there's going to be lots of career opportunities um, and to let me sort of have a go they were like okay then fine um so so but I really enjoyed computer science it was a tough degree um a lot of you know maths a lot of uh, programming in there but you know the university had a great support um I never really felt like I was you know one of four females in this large cohort um, that never ever got that feeling. And I think that's what we carried forward into the automotive industry, because again, that's still very much male dominated, but it's something that I've been used to from a very young age. So I think it hasn't phased me to remain in the industry as well. Um, and nowadays, obviously, I think there's more and more diversity, whether it's, you know, gender diversity or backgrounds or, you know, different experiences coming through into, into the industry. 
So I'm actually quite pleased that I'm in the industry. As we heard there, Karima's passion for technology emerged pretty early. She was at school. And so having that idea, that clarity early on meant that it was able to inform some of the decision making that she did from an early age. Whereas another guest, Leopold Fisser, who is now well known in the automotive and automotive finance industries, as he explains in this extract, he started out, he came to our industry via tobacco and then entertainment. But the old school tobacco companies were neat. Like they would, once they hire you, they put you into these sort of, you know, rotation programs. Like you, you're going to become a tobacco guy. We're going to train you and you year for life. Like people were there for 30 years, 40 years, like, you know, in terms of loyalty. And that made sense for me. Um, so they started rotating me every six to nine months to a different department. So you went from treasury to sales and marketing accounting and then from sales and marketing accounting to marketing. I was a brand manager. I ran Dunhill and Rothmans as a brand. <laughs> yep. That was interesting, you know, taking this this sort of, you know, Namibian farm boy and putting him in front of, you know, camera people and, you know, photographers and, and all this type of stuff, trying to run a brand, you know, no idea what marketing was, no concept of how it works, but it was pretty cool. And they rotated me around and I spent about three, four years of my career there just really learning the basics of how the different departments within a large organization run, right? We had international consolidations, we had treasury, we had sales and marketing, we had accounting, we had marketing, we had sales volumes. And, and it really gave me a great foundation of understanding how a big international conglomerate should run. What I did learn is that I'm not a tobacco guy. Don't smoke, never smoked. You know, I grew up with farmers who smoke their whole lives, but I don't. So hated it from day one. And there was a point where you just became, you know, this is when tobacco was going through its real sort of attack by the world, right? It was lawsuits. Even when I was a brand manager, I was not allowed to write anything down. No minutes of meetings, no memos to confirm anything. We had lawyers sit and go through all our documentation every week to make sure nobody says anything wrong. We were in constant lawsuits with, you know, and rightly so, right? I mean, the tobacco industry was found out to have done a lot of things, right? And it was just for me became like the industry went from this big, massive conglomerate industry that had access to everything, became this really narrow focus on how do we get people just to smoke cigarettes, right? And that for me just became too constricting. Um, so I said, okay, well, I really enjoy financial services. Let me see if I can get a job in financial services. So I started looking around, interviewed with Deutsche Bank, interviewed with a couple of the local Canadian banks like Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, you know, a bunch of financial companies um but you know i was really worried it was going to be just like another big monster that i had to deal with and then out of the blue uh, a headhunter called me uh, i think someone got my name and it was they were in the entertainment industry movies and television and they ran this company that um was owned by you know um Paul Bromfman, and they do financial services for the movie and television industry. At that stage, Canada was offering a ton of uh, credits to people coming up to the Canadian markets and using Canadian talent to actually generate, you know, produce movies like Lionsgate and Universal Studios. And everybody did all their movies up there, and then we get these tax credits back. So that offered me an opportunity to work with guys that provided, like, you know, accounting services for the production company. They would set up the treasury and the shell company to do all the tax you know, credits for them. And then they would also provide all the, you know, the IT services just to, how do you run a production house? You have to have an operating system. You have to have all that you know, data management, time card management. 
So it was pretty neat. So I interviewed, um, got the job from these guys. Crazy world coming from tobacco, old school, you know, very hierarchy or very political, very traditional to the movie and film industry. Like I'll never forget my first day on the job. I started in November and two weeks later, I think we had a Christmas party in the office and, you know, I didn't know what to expect a Christmas party. I would show up and uh, we just went, you know, people around and people were in costumes, but the costumes were a little bit different to what I was used to. Like normally somebody has a Santa hat on. Now we're talking with people that have, you know, assless chaps on. And I'm like, how do I deal with this? <laughs> so it's just like this flamboyant industry versus like what I was used to. But it was actually pretty fun to sort of, you know, see how it works. It's clear that Leopold had quite a bit of fun seeing how the entertainment industry works. And let's stay there because the entertainment industry is fun. So Tom Stepancheck is another auto finance guy who also spent time in the entertainment industry. And he has some very entertaining stories. Here's just one of them from when he was in Hollywood working as a runner for Dick Clark Productions. So uh, one, one other quick story I have to tell you as, as a runner, and I, I think it's statute of limitations are, are gone. So I think I can tell this story now. Oh, goody. So I, I'd, I'd been there maybe two months. And so the way these award shows work is when, when hey, Michael Jackson, here's your award. They give you a dummy trophy and then they wait and see who wins. And then everything gets inscribed and engraved. And then the trophies actually come two months later. So now I'm there now working two months into my job and all the trophies show up. And there's Michael Jackson. They're all wrapped in baby diapers in these boxes. And there's the Michael Jackson uh, eight trophies. And he lived in Encino, you know, part of uh, Los Angeles, maybe, I don't know, half hour from the office. And my, my boss, Jeff Cobb, says, okay, get these trophies over to Michael Jackson's house. I'm like, okay. So I load my Dotson pickup truck. I load up Michael Jackson's eight trophies and I, I get out there and, you know, big gated thing. And there's all these girls standing outside. They're just standing outside Michael Jackson's gate, you know, and I, I push, hello, I'm Tom from Dick Clark Productions. I've delivered, okay. The gate opens up and I drive in and I get inside and, and uh, my, my boss told me, you get Michael or one of his parents to sign for these trophies. I want a signature that these trophies have been received. And so I get out there, the guard lets me in. And I said, look, I need Michael or one of the parents to sign. He goes, he goes, nobody's here. He goes, nobody's home. So I, I call up my boss, Jeff. And I said, I said, Jeff, sorry, there's nobody here to sign for thing. And he just started screaming his obscenities. <laughs> and then he says, <laughs> and it is, this is like now six o'clock now, six o'clock in the evening. And he's grumbling. He says, take him home. And garden with your mm -mm life. I'm like, okay. I get on uh, again. My roommate Brian is there. I, I get home and I I take these eight boxes into this little apartment. I said, I said Brian. I said, I got Michael Jackson's trophies here. <laughs> so, is that is that what I can see behind you, Tom? <laughs> okay, and Andy, I, I think I think I'm I think I'm protected here. We opened up one of the boxes and we took a whole bunch of photos with Michael Jackson's trophy. And we put it in the laundry basket. We put it in the refrigerator. <laughs> we put it in, in all these unusual places. And I have all these photos someplace in my basement, I'm sure. And then, you know, wrapped it up. And, and then I, I, I took the, the trophies back the next day and, and got the signature and I was on my way. So 
it, it's it's funny because you know there was a, a very tight relationship between Dick Clark and Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson made his network television debut on American Bandstand as like as like a nine year old boy with the Jackson Five. And so that was one of those moments that helped propel the career of the Jackson Five and, and ultimately Michael Jackson. So the tight relationship between these, these two men. And it got to the point where I'd go to his house so many times that when I would pull up to the gate, I didn't even have to push the button. The guard could see my truck through the, the, the monitor and the gate would just automatically open up. And all the little girls, are you Michael's friend? Are you Michael's friend? <laughs> <laughs> So I, you know, I'd go, I would see him out there and, and he was, he was just like, he would like dancing around. He just had like stuff all over the floor and he, you could sell. He was just like, he was thinking of his next moonwalk, his next dance routine is he was just a, a brilliant, brilliant, creative person, you know, always thinking and challenging to do something new, a, an amazing person. We lost him way too soon, but there, I, again, I think this, this story is from 1984. So I, I don't think I can get in any trouble now. No question, Tom was clearly having a ball in showbiz. And staying with the fun, I want to introduce you, well, you might have already met Lito, but I wanted to finish off with a clip from Lito Hemam. And early in his career, Lito was working in the family recruitment consultancy in the Philippines when he decided to take over the bar across the road from the office where he was working. And just listen, have a listen to the environment that he created in this bar and tell me you don't want to go there. Behind the bar, you're invisible for a strange reason. You know, it's like it's like cab drivers and barbers where they're there, but they're not there. So people are unguarded in that sense. You know what I mean? And so when I was behind the bar, conversations would happen and I would be there and I would think that's a very personal conversation. Should I move away? <laughs> you know, but, but they continue. So you learn so much about how people are and how they act. And even from afar, just watching people in the bar, looking across and knowing that that guy wants to hit on that girl over there, but he doesn't know how to do it. It taught me the power of observation that, you know, because I, Especially as marketers, we're kind of used to ourselves being in the limelight a lot and talking and, and, and uh, presenting, etc. But actually, I never lost that aspect of just sitting back and really observing. And I think a lot of that came from, from the bar. I could fill a couple of hours just talking with the bar. Is there one particular story that's worth sharing now? Oh, quite a, quite a few. One interesting one among thousands. I had a, I had a couple that came to my bar every Friday night, right? And it's the busiest time, obviously, it's a weekend. And they took the, I had a VIP table, you know, a little bit pompous, to be honest. Although, you know, we, we tried hard, but we, we created this exclusivity around the VIP table that overlooked the whole bar. And, and you had, there was a minimum spend on this and you had to book it in advance, et cetera, et cetera. And they booked it every Friday night without fail for over a year, I think they were there. Now, the funny thing is, and I hope they're not one of your listeners now because maybe they're still together. But the funny thing is um, every Monday night, the husband would be there with a date. Uh, another another woman, obviously. And, you know, they would be sweet and do things. But I always wondered, why bring your wife and your girlfriend to the same place, right? But what was quite interesting was every Wednesday night, the girl was there with her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I don't, I know, and the, the, the rule, no, we had a few rules in the bar and rule number one was never ask. So we never dared ask, right? And, and so I never actually found out the story, uh, whether it was an open relationship or what was going on. But one thing 100% sure I knew was that they were married. Um, but what I didn't know was <laughs> why same bar, why always that way, et cetera, et cetera. But it was quite interesting that it was just a drama that we just watched every day on a Monday, Wednesday, and, and Friday. It was like a, a TV series that we were just enjoying from the sidelines, you know? It's a great story. And they're also, one thing we do know about them is they're very loyal customers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I enjoyed their business while I enjoyed their story too. So overall, I benefited for sure, man. Yeah. And I wish them well. I hope they're still playing around, but still together maybe. So, so, so either they were open in an open relationship or they loved your bar so much they were prepared to take the risk. And, uh... Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you know, what's funny is my bar was um, patterned after uh, Cheers, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, where everyone knows your name, et cetera. And so one of the, in fact, one of the marketing concepts we had was that, there, you know, there are no strangers here, only friends we haven't met. And so if you walked into the bar and no one knew you, we called you a virgin, right? That you, and on that day, on that night that you come in as a virgin, you get a, a glass with your name on it. And you can fill this glass with anything, whether it's beer, wine, vodka, or whatever, um, nothing too expensive, obviously, but for the whole night, that glass is uh, refillable and it's, it's on the house because you're a virgin, right? And, and that alone already created so much referral. It was like a referral program for me because people love to bring virg virgins, so-called virgins to the bar where they would come in and say, hey, everyone, I've got a, a virgin over here. I give them the glass. And if, if anyone is seen holding a, a glass with that, it was an open invitation to say, hey, Andy, how are you doing? You know, where are you from, et cetera? Because that was the whole concept. If you want to drink for free, people will walk up to you. You can't just rock up as a virgin and stand in the corner there and not talk to anyone. So, so the virgins were meant to go around and actually just uh, enjoy and meet everyone. So because of that concept, everyone knew everyone. And so... Again, going back to this, these two, uh, the, the famous uh, couple, I never understood because for sure I wasn't the only one seeing it. There were other guys who would also go on different days and see it. But then again, our whole rule and the culture of this bar was the never ask rule, which is, you know what, we're just here to actually be okay and be among friends. There's no drama here. So everything is okay. You know, it's funny. Brilliant. As you'll know, if you've listened to his episode in full, Lito's now in Dubai on a mission to put the favourite food from the Philippines onto as many tables as possible. And I hope that when he's finished doing that, he'll come to the UK, come to my village in Bramley and take over our pub. You've been listening to episode 53 of Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. This is our special bonus episode that marks the end of our first year of podcasting. What a year it has been. Can't believe we've got here, but we've done it thanks to a great team and some lovely guests. I'm so grateful to the wonderful, wonderful guests, wonderful human beings who have joined me and have shared their life and their career stories with us so generously and with loads of humility and good humour. 
And I hope that this episode will encourage you to go back and listen again to some of your favourite episodes or to have a listen to someone's story who you haven't heard before because you realise actually I don't have to listen to just people I know. There's there's lots of other interesting stories on here as well. So I hope you do that. Going forward, we'll continue to bring you interviews with rising stars and senior leaders in the automotive and auto finance industries. We want to provide a platform for all voices in our industry based on merit, based on humility, based on humanity. And if you know people who fit that bill and who would like to share that, they have to want to share their story, then please let us know. We recognise as well that we've developed this wonderful resource library based on the genuine experiences of our friends and colleagues in the industry. And we're excited to find new ways over the next 12 months to share those experiences with you. So look out for Uh, We're going to call them side mirrors. Yes, pretty pleased with that. So Career View Mirror has these little side mirrors that are coming and they're going to be, we're going to repurpose some of the content and find different ways to entertain you and share some of our guest stories. As you know by now, we publish these episodes to celebrate my guest careers, listen to their stories and learn from their experiences. And as always, I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. If you have any comments or feedback for us, if you have any questions or if any of our guests insights have helped you, please let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser or you can find the episode on our Instagram and comment there. Thank you to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah and to Julia who works so hard behind the scenes every week to make sure that these episodes get edited and published on time. And a special thank you to all my guests from the first 52 episodes. There really would be no show without you. This episode of Careerview Mirror is brought to you by Aqualine. Aqualine is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service to help you design and deliver projects that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more about that. To be among the first to know about our upcoming guests, follow us on Instagram at careerviewmirror. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, then please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hardworking you are, you're never going to be able to do it on your own. It's just not possible. You know, at the end of the day, you're steering your own destiny. So if it's not happening for you, you're not seeing what you want out there, then go out there and connect. Don't rely on others. You, you have to do it yourself. You have to take control. If you've got an idea, if you've got a thought about something that might be successful, if you've got a passion to do something yourself, but you just haven't quite got there, do it. Take a risk, take a chance, stick your neck out. What's the worst that can happen? You fall down, okay, you pick yourself up and you try again.